Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Feeling lucky? Nemecolon's Lady Luck Casino is under new management and better than ever with 26 table games and an array of slot machines for you to test your luck. Try your luck at the table games, hit the slots for the day, or stay overnight to enjoy Nema Cullen's luxury accommodations, fine dining, and all that the casino has to offer in one breathtaking mountain location. Visit nemacolon.com for more information and to reserve your stay. Lady Luck is open to the public. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Stars thinking this entire planet is some sort of all-you-can-eat, booty-groping, sexual smorgasbord. You should withdraw that, and if you don't, we will have to deal with it on the floor of the Senate. We're going to fight for those Australians who haven't got the time to go around and get on Twitter and wear T-shirts. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. So I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. G'day and welcome to The Curb. My name's Andrew Pearce and this is the podcast is all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and I pay respects to their elders both past, present and emerging. On this episode, I catch up with documentary filmmaker Aidan Pruitt about his documentary Woodstock at 50, a venue for the end of the world, which is screening at this year's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on July 24th. At this screening will be a special guest flying all the way from America, Chip Monk, who is best known as the role as uh, one of the most successful documentaries of all time in Woodstock, where he made the famous announcement that the brown acid is not specifically too good. He was the lighting designer and the MC at Woodstock 50 years ago, and so it's really, really great to see that he's coming across to do a Q&A at this year's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Look, we touch on a lot of great stuff in this interview. It's one of the, the more fun interviews I've had in a long while, and I really enjoyed talking to Aiden about his film and what goes into being an, an Australian filmmaker and also a documentarian. And interestingly, what it means to be uh, an interviewer and an interviewee. And that's where we jump off this discussion. So let's have a listen to the trailer and then we'll get into that interview. As a short note as well, there was about 10 seconds of audio near the end of the interview that uh, somehow disappeared, uh, But so Aiden's answer sounds a little bit fractured, but it's uh, that's on me. Uh, other than that, you can still understand exactly what he's trying to say. A trip to Switzerland, to Geneva, and I made uh, all the inquiries necessary, and I finally ended up having uh, coffee with Albert Speer. Everything that the, the Fuhrer would, in fact, uh, appear at or be anywhere around was, was done by Herr Speer. After I showed him the mirror and the things that I was doing for Rolling Stones and what I did, and he had a good laugh at it, right? he then brought out the plans of Nuremberg. I'm curious for you as well, like being a, an interviewer, what's it like being interviewed? Uh, well, you know, I like to imagine that, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of, I've got some of that behind the scenes knowledge and so I try and aim to, to jump straight onto a good anecdote or something like that. But, you know, when I'm actually in the firing line, 
then you know whether or not I actually pick the right anecdote to say or whether it's interesting enough. I'm always I'm always second guessing myself, so it may actually be less of an advantage. I think. <laughs> I know. I know. For me, at least, like I've never been interviewed myself, but I know that when I listen back to the interviews, sometimes I'm like, "Oh, why didn't I ask this? Why didn't I ask that?" And you know, it's always so in the moment. I'm sure that being on the other side, you're like, "Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say that?" So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a complex uh, relationship. I think the interviewer and the interviewee, at least. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, and it, it's fascinating. It's kind of it's a conversation unlike anything that would happen in real life, anyway. So it's kind of there's always the the slight air of artifice i suppose well yeah yeah in that regard with this film it's about woodstock what's it like interviewing people who have had you know there's obviously there's been 50 years since woodstock when this film was made there wasn't 50 years but there's still decades of time in between when it occurred what's it like sitting down with somebody like that and talking about this monumental occasion well, it, it was hard to, you know, stop my jaw from hitting the floor from the second that I got to meet some of these people, uh, and I had to really keep myself together. The first person we interviewed um, for this particular uh, project in terms of Woodstock was Michael Shreve, who was the drummer for Santana, who... who the, the drum solo that he performed at Woodstock is one of the absolute centerpieces of the original Woodstock film. Uh, so when I got in touch with him and he invited us out to his house in Seattle uh, to just go on, uh, I mean to interview him, but what ended up happening was basically to, for us to sort of hang out a little bit. And um, we, you know, I opened, he opened the door, I knocked on the door, he opened the door, and there, you know, it, there he was standing right in front of me. It was a moment of kind of disbelief, and I really had to hold things together as much as I possibly could. And it was only after the interview that I... Uh, I, I started to uh, sort of turn into my fanboy self, uh, which really is the reason I, I try and, you know, do all this stuff, is to be able to, you know, get to meet these people. Um, and I said to Michael at the end of the interview, you know, thank you so much, you know, this this whole uh, project is, is going to work because, you know, the stories you're telling are, are linking things together. Uh, and by the way, yeah, I'm a drummer myself, and uh, you really inspired me with that solo that you did and um yeah I, and you know that could go either way he you know sometimes people might shut off a little bit if they're you know with that awkwardness of having a fan in their presence but um yeah no michael was very gracious i'm sure he's used to it uh i mean he he's uh you know he's been doing it for 50 years so uh he then invited us out to his gig that night as it happens uh and we got to see several more drum solos and i'm pleased to report that he he uh, as amazing as he was 50 years ago, he's even better now. You know, he's in his uh, late 60s and he's still able to do these mind-blowing drum solos that I can only hope, you know, in my wildest dreams that one day I'll be able to do something like that. Well, that's the thing that is very inspirational is seeing all these people who are, you know, are big inspirations to a lot of people. And, you know, I don't have a music bone in my body, but I really appreciate music, and I've watched, you know, a lot of the foot, the footage from Woodstock and the original Woodstock film and stuff like that, and it's, it's just amazing to see all these people who are so talented and so, uh, you know, era setting and and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, what's it like to be inspired by them? Like, obviously, you you work with music and and you teach music. What's that like to have that kind of life inspiration? Well, I mean, I think when I when I first saw the Woodstock documentary, the original one, it was broadcast on SBS late one night, uh, and I was probably about sixteen, just sort of channel skipping, and and I landed on this thing, and I went. All right, you know, I'm kind of into. I've just discovered Jimi Hendrix, and I'm I'm really into you know picking up the electric guitar and things like that. So I'll check this out. And this, I think it started broadcasting at midnight, and it finished at something like three thirty in the morning. Uh, and I thought I started watching. I'll I'll take in you know half an hour of this, and I'll go to bed. Of course, I barely made it to bed because I, not only had I sat wide-eyed through this entire experience of watching that film for the first time uh by 3 30 in the morning you know my life direction had kind of changed and i i'm sure i had you know lots of trouble sleeping because i at that moment realized okay my life either is going to be uh you know i want to be a rock star uh which was kind of already floating around in my head at that time but then the other thing was i want to be a documentary filmmaker because look at look at what you get to look what you get access to Look at these people that you get to hang out with and, and you become a fabric of this incredible society that has sprung up, you know, in, in upstate New York. Uh, that sort of set me on this new path of, as a music lover, uh, I, I can follow music, but I can also, you know, I could become a professional fan of this stuff as well. I could get paid to appreciate it, uh, which is really, yeah, what's what's sort of come about which is fantastic yeah well it's got to be i mean that that's part of the reason why i do what i do with film reviews and interviews and stuff like that is that yeah okay it's it's really enjoyable to be able to rub shoulders with the you know the people who inspire you but it's also nice to be able to push their stories in some regards and there's no better way than doing it than via documentary and i i think that you know Certainly, with the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, I've been a fan of of what they do for a long time. Obviously, uh, Lyndon's been doing it for a few years now, but I've been based in yeah. Perth, so I can only look look on and enjoy the films that I get sent to to watch and interview people about. But that's the joy of the documentary format: is that you can talk to people about their work and share it in in a brilliant way. Uh, and I think you've done a great job here as well. Uh, so with that in mind as well, what's it like revisiting this film? Because it was made, what, 2016, 2015, 2016, is that right? Yeah, well, actually, I completed it in 2014, and then it did sort of the festival circuit, and it was distributed uh, in the States in 2016. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of revisiting it, I've, I've been very lucky in that I've got to revisit it several times, um, you know, through the festival circuit and then through distribution. Uh, most recently... Uh, there was a film festival in Iran that uh, loved it and decided they wanted to fly me out there to present the film at, at um, the uh, Tehran Urban International Film Festival. So I was treated to this incredible week uh, where I yeah, got to go and hang out in Iran for a week, which I'd you know, n- never really had any proper concept of, um, of what, what Iran is as a country. Uh, I'm now very pleased to to be able to say uh, I, I was treated as royalty uh, more so than in any other country I've ever visited, uh, and I had a fantastic time. And it was very, it was extremely peaceful. I felt very comfortable all the time. Basically, uh, 
revisiting the film in that format was 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 a totally different experience, given that uh, the film itself, uh, the original cut, it's got probably twenty minutes of Woodstock in it. The new cut is nearly an hour of Woodstock, uh, but in its original form, really, the, the, one of the underlying principal themes of this film is. Uh, you know, pushing back against authority and and asking questions and uh, and protesting uh, and there's a lot in the, in it about the nature of protest and especially of Woodstock as a as a protest movement, given that it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War uh, and half a million people descended on this farm, equal to the number of uh, Americans that were were in Vietnam at the time. So it it was a it was a huge cultural moment, uh, not just in music but also in terms of uh, uh, protest. Yeah, so uh, in Iran, they were so interested in, in terms of this promoting this idea of the peaceful protest, and uh, I, I was thrilled, you know, to, be, to sort of be able to visit this country that has, has suffered such, uh, you know, they've had so many difficult times, and I, I see Iran popping up in the, in the headlines every now and then, uh, currently, thanks to uh, Donald Trump. And uh, I, I just look at that and go, well, the experience that I had was one of, of peace, of absolute um, peace and, and love, yeah. <laughs> to, to use that phrase, in terms of, um, of being invited to this country that uh, you know, has had so much of the opposite, uh, that, that they were so keen to embrace that. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's, it's fun revisiting this stuff and it's fun to, to see it in different lights. And I'm thrilled now to be able to present this project, uh, in a, in a way that is solely about Woodstock and Woodstock's relationship to, uh, the wider sort of 20th century. Mm. Well, I think that's one of the things which, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen that original Woodstock documentary, and, and unfortunately my interaction with uh, the entity that is Woodstock has been kind of minimal over the past 10 years or so when I personally become more politically active. So watching this, I was I was surprised at the... Um, the relevance and the, the the importance of the protest aspect of Woodstock. So it was nice to have that kind of recontextualization of this mammoth thing as not just being a music festival where a lot of good music occurred, but, you know, a pivotal point in politics in America around the world as well. Um, I'm curious for you how important it is to to touch on politics as a filmmaker because I know that you did a a short film about Trump um which I'm I'm very keen to to engage with and see um what's that mean for you as a filmmaker to touch on politics Well for me it's it's uh I think I've touched on politics in every film I've ever taken part in I mean even uh 12 years ago, my first assistant editing job was on a film called um, Whatever Happened to Brenda Heen, which uh, was a it was one of the MIF Premier Fund films of, of that year. And uh, that that was all about one of the founders of the Greens movement uh, in Tasmania who, who suspiciously went missing and has never been found uh, in the 70s in the middle of a, of a protest movement about the, lake, uh, the, the, the damming and flooding of the Lake Pedder which uh, has just popped up again and, and that uh, there are various movements who would like to restore that lake. Uh, so I kind of 
came into my filmmaking consciousness through the idea of the, the documentary as a as a political medium, uh, and I I always uh, really liked uh, you know the work of Michael Moore who who is extremely political, uh, and as well as I mean things like Super Size Me that were coming out at this time when I started to really look into documentary, which uh, is a very political film in itself, albeit you know uh, in such a comedic way, which again I suppose informs the way that I approach things because I'm not trying to you know, cram anything down people's throats. It's just sort of like, let's pick it apart, let's ask questions and let's find out what's at the heart or what's at the core of, of what's going on in whatever the case may be. In Wood, With Woodstock, uh, for me, the political element almost overshadows the, the music. I mean, the music was the magnet that drew this half a million people in. Uh, and once they were there, the focus was very much on on peace and part of the miracle of Woodstock I suppose was basically that um, it, it it was a city the size of uh, I mean the size at the time you know bigger than Ballarat uh, and you know zero instances of, of violence reported uh, you know you if you're in Ballarat and uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are, there's a police force you know that is is working and is you know doing what they need to do to cope with a normal city's level of violence that occurs so to go three days in a city of half a million with no violence it's just unheard of uh and i i wanted to explore that and figure out you know what was it psychologically that allowed that to happen mm. Well, I, that's one of the moments which I was just like, I was, <laughs> you can hear your shock as well in, in, as you're asking the question where I think it's, you're sitting down with Chip and he's talking about moving the audience back 10 paces so that they can be yeah. safe and away from the stage. And he's like, you know, and he's, and he's saying, oh, like, yeah, we moved a hundred people back, back, back. And, you know, went 10, nine, yada, yada, yada. And then you were like a hundred people. And he's like, no, no, a hundred thousand people. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> It's insane. Like, I can't even conceive being in an audience of 100,000 people. There's, you know, you put an image of how many people are there, but even then it's still like, it's overwhelming. Uh, you know, certainly in Australia, I've never been in an audience of that many people. It's nuts. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I've, I think in terms of audience is probably the biggest that I've ever been a part of. Uh, I mean, the MCG holds at absolute maximum, I think, 100,000. Uh, and I've I've been to the MCG uh, probably uh, maybe not at capacity actually because uh, it was being refurbished at one point when I was there for a grand final, and uh, it, so it must have been eighty thousand or so. And it's it's that in itself is over absolutely overwhelming. So if you you know multiply that by five, and uh, and that's sort of getting to what, to what Woodstock was. It's just absolutely mind boggling to consider. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I hope that I. Uh, that I don't ever really find myself in a crowd of half a million. It's because, uh, yeah, it, it just seems like the most absolutely mind-boggling thing. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I struggle with a crowd. You know, of, yeah. uh, if I'm if I'm in a crowd like the MCG, it's like, oh, this is you know, everyone's getting a bit cramped. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, uh, 
In that regard, like, I find it interesting, like, especially in the last couple of weeks where the protests in Hong Kong have been occurring, and I've seen a few photos of the politeness and um, the, you know, the civility that is occurring. There's, like, you know, a million people essentially protesting in Hong Kong, and you see the images of it, and it's so peaceful and so calm. And then I watched this documentary, and I'm seeing, you know, this group of people who are, there is that peacefulness and that calmness there, and it's... It's impressive to see that, you know, yes, in in huge numbers, we can still be peaceful and calm. You know, it's not all uh, antagonism and violence. You know, if we've all got the same agenda and the same mentality, then that peacefulness and calmness can occur. It's not, uh, we're not inherently bad, I guess, is is the peaceful uh, and and. You know, it's the 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 part that I take away from it. It's like, yeah, okay, we're not terrible. We're not all terrible people. You know, it's it's nice to see that. <laughs> oh, definitely. I, I yeah, seeing those photos from Hong Kong, uh, I had chills down my spine because it's just it's, what a beautiful representation of of how well humanity can coexist. Uh, and it, it, that is a mirror to me of what happened at Woodstock. It's, it's the same vibe uh, of this non-violent uh, protest. And, and uh, I mean, uh, in, in the film, uh, Jeannie Field, who was one of the film crew from the original Woodstock documentary, she, she says it, it, Woodstock was where that feeling of the hippie movement coalesced and became... Uh, became its own entity and stood up and said, you know, we are a force to be reckoned with politically uh, because look how many of us there are standing here to be counted against Vietnam. And and this is what we're seeing in Hong Kong recently and also what we're seeing uh, in Australia's capital cities where the school kids are really, you know, rising up and saying, hey, come on, we we need this world to still exist uh, in a in a livable way for us when when we you know get to be sixty seventy years old older and hopefully you know hopefully their grandkids and subsequent generations are able to you know make a way forward in this society uh, in whatever you know whatever form that looks like in the future. Yeah, I I find it interesting. One of the the contrasts that you do use is the 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 marches of Nazi marches and things like that. Um, that I found fascinating as well because obviously we're talking about peaceful protests in a lot of ways, and technically on paper the Nazi protests are, you know, certainly in that era were very uh, peaceful protests because they're all following an order and following. Um, you know, directions in a lot of way. I'm curious for you as a filmmaker what how you came up with that that comparison and has there been any pushback from people who have watched the film uh, using that particular imagery to contrast what's been going on? Well, it's yeah, that to me was sort of the centerpiece of the original film, was looking at uh, rock concerts and specifically Woodstock as the emblem of that uh, and also looking at political gatherings and, and how the two really, you know, lend and borrow from each other in the sense of whipping up a crowd into a frenzy. I mean, in, in the research for this film, I really discovered some very interesting uh, rock stars who have gone on record as saying, you know, uh, I mean, Mick Jagger said that he watched Triumph of the Will something like 15 times just studying the stage presence of Hitler. 
uh, and that just completely boggled my mind. And he went on to then hire Lenny Riefenstahl, who uh, filmed that film, Triumph of the Will, for Hitler. Uh, she was still around in the 70s and 80s, and uh, he hired her to take couple shots of himself with his then wife, Bianca. Uh, I, I just went, what? How, how, does, how does someone, how does anyone... Uh, you know, make contact with somebody who was such a part of this machine that, that you know, wiped out half of Europe. Uh, and, and, and just sort of the civilly go, you know what, you come and, I'll pay you to come and take photos. Like, what? You, you'll do what? That, that makes no sense. Uh, and yet it happened. And so many performers um, are on record as saying they, they were heavily influenced. And so I thought, hang on, if we look back, that era was so it formed such a part of of the the political consciousness of the world that so much is influenced by it not just it's not just politics it's not just music it sort of it it seeps into the fabric of everything that we do Um, and if you look at the way the world is now we're still coping with some of the ripples and echoes of the second world war i mean it's still in living memory uh there are there are still heaps of people alive who remember that era very very clearly um so that was that that's always fascinated me and it was really uh wonderful to be able to go through and sort through all of this incredible footage um and to and to go and find out you know from people who were at these kinds of things uh yeah what was it like and how did that all come about and then to find out that uh chipmunk who was the MC of Woodstock, uh, who he was the lighting designer at the last moment, was tapped on the shoulder and said, by the way, we've forgotten to hire an announcer, so you're it. Uh, and Chip said, well, all right, I'll do that. And so he became this iconic voice of that festival, saying, um, I mean, his famous announcement, uh, the, uh, the brown acid that is circulating around us is uh, not specifically too good, so uh, please be advised, you know, it is... It's your trip, so be my guest, but, but please be advised of the warning on this. Uh, that famous announcement was, was, you know, spoken by Chip, along with, you know, introducing uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix and, you know, most of the other acts. Uh, Chip, who was famous for doing that and also five years on, on tour with the Rolling Stones, in the 70s, after designing staging and lighting for the Rolling Stones, uh, he got in touch with Albert Speer, who was Hitler's chief architect, who designed all of these spaces where these rallies were held. Now, he also uh, had a big hand in creating the Volkswagen uh, and quite a lot of the armament for the German forces in World War II. Uh, He spent 20 years in Spandau prison, uh, and when he was released, uh, Chip made contact with him, and uh, they went and had coffee in Geneva, uh, as you do, I suppose, and and Chip brought a roll of plans from the Rolling Stones, uh, Albert Speer brought a roll of his plans from the, the Nuremberg rally, and they made they you know compared and made notes. And uh, so Chip is I'm sitting in Chip's lounge room, and he's telling me this. I didn't know this before I interviewed him, uh, and I, I just couldn't couldn't hold myself together. I just went, this is. I mean, first of all, this is the nexus of of where these two worlds of politics and music really connect. So at that moment, I knew I had a film. Uh, I, I knew that there was, you know, there was something going on here that that warranted further exploration. 
but at the same time, I was just like, oh, this is one of those, why? <laughs> like, this man was in prison for war crimes uh, for 20 years and, uh, and facilitated so much of what happened uh, in the Second World War. How, 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 is this, how does this then warrant a civil sit-down coffee and, and all this kind of stuff? Uh, so then I, I have to ask myself, well, if these people were still alive, would I want to interview them? And the answer is, of course, yes. I, I'm sure I would if they were. Uh, and so then I've got to look at myself and go, okay, hang on, now why? What's your motivation for that? And, and would you uh, be working to glorify that if you did? Uh, and so that, you know, I have to do some soul searching. Uh, I'm not in a position to do that as most of these, uh, in fact, I have Googled it. Uh, basically, if, if there are uh, high-ranking Nazis still around, uh, they're very much in hiding. So uh, the chances of interviewing them are very, very slim. So I don't have to make that decision anytime, which is which is kind of probably a good thing. Yeah, it's reassuring. Although, I mean, with the uh, we don't need to dig into it, but the the rise of Nazi, uh, you know the the right in a, in the world today is uh, equally concerning. So. Um, you know, while you may not get that opportunity with uh, those people uh, in the past, uh, the terrifying aspect is that you may in the future. Um, but I want to touch on, because uh, Chip is coming all the way from America to uh, the screening uh, for Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and doing a Q&A. What's that like for you? What does that mean for you as a filmmaker to have uh, somebody so monumental be there for the Australian screening of this film? Oh, it's it's absolutely mind-blowing that uh i mean so the interview with chip was about five years ago and and chip and i have been in sporadic contact since then uh largely in relation to like the distribution and festival and stuff like that um and i mean the incredible thing is that chip actually has a house here in melbourne so uh it wasn't that much of a stretch for him to be able to come to the screening but uh i mean even so to just be able to, to shoot off an email and and for for chip to reply at all it, for me i still yet uh, you know i, I uh, i'm very excited to receive any kind of correspondence from anyone who was involved with with woodstock or or indeed people like um uh da pennybaker who makes a small appearance in this film as well uh who was responsible for monterey pop as well as bob dylan's don't look back and uh ziggy stardust and the spider from us uh he also provided a, an extensive interview uh which i i just went wow how how is it that you know the the spirit of Woodstock and of the sixties that these people who were there uh, are so generous and so giving and so willing to help out people like myself who might be you know in the earlier stages of their career? Uh, yeah, it's just it's absolutely it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to uh, to know that there is that support out there from from these absolute heroes. Uh, I mean, they're luminaries of the industry. Uh, D.A. Pennybaker himself was awarded a Lifetime Honorary uh, uh, um, Academy Award <laughs> just a few years back. So, like, yeah, the, the incredible way that these people are so generous with their time uh, and and to have Chip at this screening, uh, I yeah, when he agreed to that, I thought, what a coup. What a, what a wonderful moment to to be able to celebrate Woodstock at the 50th anniversary. I mean, we're, 
we're basically three weeks out. The screening itself is, is just before the actual anniversary. But to have such a huge part of that festival present in Melbourne and to attend this screening to celebrate Woodstock is uh, it's just tremendous. Yeah, it is. And, I, you know, if I was there, it would be fantastic. You know, the amount of questions that you'd be able to ask and all this kind of stuff and just being in the presence of somebody like him would be fantastic. Um, I've taken up even of your time and I really appreciate it. I've had a really interesting, uh, good discussion. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But I have one question. The last question I'm going to ask you is kind of a broad question. It might be a difficult question, but I'm curious for you, what does it mean to be an Australian filmmaker? What does it mean to be an Australian filmmaker? Um, well, let's see. I think it's it's a very uh, it's a unique position to be in. Uh, obviously, our film industry is fairly small, and so when I've been overseas to shoot some of these uh, interviews and and various pieces for different documentaries, uh, I've found that being overseas, the industries are much bigger, and and there is support for that uh here though what we do have that's really in our favor is that even though our numbers are small the commitment that it takes to be a filmmaker in this country uh and to remain in this country is is that you know it becomes a part of your medium in this country and to get the message out that uh the, the creative stuff that we do in this country uh competes at not only at an international level but in many cases, the stories we're telling here are just absolutely unique. And, uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be a part of that and to work with other people who are uh, just as, as, or if not more so. I mean, uh, if you look at Lyndon, who has uh, founded this documentary film festival, it's just, it's it's wonderful to be able to uh, to be a part of that. Yeah, and it's a fantastic festival, and there's uh, films like your own that are screening there, which are just brilliant and, and great to see, which you, you really can't see anywhere else, and, and that's that's a blessing and a curse in a way that it's like there's a lot of great films that are showing there, and at least you know that there's a, a one-stop shop to go to in Melbourne for a period of time where you can watch these great films, but then uh, outside of that, it would be fantastic if these films were being able to see more, but at least, you know, thanks to Linden, there is a festival that, that they can exist, so you know round of applause for melbourne documentary film festival and round of applause for yourself as well uh obviously i can't be there to clap you on but uh it is going to be uh i'm certain it's going to be a great screening at least yeah uh we're going to have a lot of fun can i can i just plug my latest project as well if of that's, course uh, you can we've got a minute for that we um, have more time than anything related <laughs> also. oh wonderful yeah um yeah i basically i mean this is kind of a weird thing that's happened but um at the start of the year i contacted a whole stack of different publishers to see if they'd be interested in doing a book about Woodstock, which centers around these interviews that i conducted with all of these people and uh i was very lucky in that several publishers got back to me and said well this sounds wonderful uh and the anniversary is quickly approaching so let's jump on this um so after a little bit i was able to decide on on you know which offer from which publisher and uh i'm absolutely thrilled to be able to say that uh i will have a book uh coming out through the publisher political animal uh in august right around the time for the the documentary and it, it will be a book of uh interviews from woodstock people and uh a little bit of wider material from the from the late 60s, which, um, yeah, it, it's come together really fantastically. And 
I, yeah, I can't wait to 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 be at this screening with Chip, and also uh, you know to to keep celebrating Woodstock through the rest of the year with this book. That is absolutely brilliant. Congratulations on that. That's that's a perfect uh, you know perfect relationship as well. You've got the film, and then you've got a something that people can carry around and hand to each other and say, "Hey, look, give these a read. It's going to be really interesting." So that's that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you so much for. Uh, yeah, for, for uh, this interview. This has been lots of fun. So is director Aidan Pruitt talking about his documentary Venue for the End of the World, which is all about Woodstock, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And as you mentioned in that interview, this documentary is screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on July 24th with guest Chipmunk coming all the way from America to do a Q&A after the screening. This screening occurs a few weeks before that 50th anniversary so what better way to celebrate Woodstock than heading along to go and see a great film and supporting independent Australian film and independent film festivals it's really important you do that it's fantastic to head out and go and see these small films and and share the love for cinema as a whole especially documentary film format I'm a huge documentary fan and you can hear me being uh, continuing to be a documentary fan on the website thecurb.com.au uh, where you can listen to other interviews with filmmakers for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and read reviews and interviews and things like that as well. Lots of stuff going on the website. Also head over to facebook.com forward slash thecurbau and twitter.com forward slash thecurbau to follow us on social media. But you're all using apps and stuff like that, so of course just stick in the curb and you will find us. It's hard to miss us. Also, head over to patreon.com forward slash thecurbau to throw as little as a dollar a month our way to help keep the website going and keep me fed so I can continue doing this uh, passion project that is this website um, where I share the love of cinema with you all. If you can't do that, then it doesn't matter. Just hit share button on this particular episode and get it out there and get people listening and uh, aware that these great films exist. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Curb. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox Disinfecting Wipes, Swiffer Wet Mopping Cloths, Lysol All-Purpose Cleaner, Swiffer Wet Jet Mopping Pads, Mr. Clean Multi-Surface Cleaner, or Lysol Power Toilet Bowl Cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary.